Welcome to The How, channeling water solutions, a podcast from W12 Plus programs. The How focuses on water solutions and the people behind them from around the world. We are excited to bring to you the last episode of the season, where we have hosted a series of conversations, each with two guests with two different viewpoints on some of the most pressing water challenges facing the world today. From W12 Plus programs, I'm your host, Judy Jane. In this episode, we speak with H.P. Nanda, a group executive, vice president, and CEO of Water Utility at Grunfos, and Bruce Taylor, a leading sustainability consultant. H.P. shares how a corporation like Grunfos tackles water and energy challenges, while Bruce describes effective ways for businesses to decrease water usage. In 2022, Bruce was named the top sustainability consultant in Canada, and in this episode, H.P. asks about how Bruce developed the perspectives to lead his award-winning consultancy. Without further ado, here are HP and Bruce. HP, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to see you two today. Thank you. Thank you, Judy, having us today. HP, I, we're going to start with you today. Can you tell us what Grunfos has done in the corporate sustainability space uh, to improve energy and water usage? For example, I saw last year that the company made significant commitments for 2030 and 2050. You know, your CEO said that the responsibility for carbon that is emitted, you know, not only produced by Grunfuss products, but also the energy consumed when they are used. Um, this creates a layer of complexity money companies do not have when tracking emissions. Can you tell us more about how Grunfuss sees corporate sustainability? Thank you, Zudi. Happy to do it. You could know our purpose is to contribute our part to solve world's water and climate challenges. And as you look at the challenges of water, Mother Nature has given us water wherever she decided, underground, in oceans, in lakes, rivers, ponds. And we need water where people live, industries operate. We have schools, colleges, hospitals, buildings. We need water there. So taking water where Mother Nature gave us to where people need it for their daily life, we have to move water. Unfortunately, moving water also consumes a lot of energy. And that is why if you have to solve water and climate challenges, we have to move water in the most sustainable way. So that is why our thinking is how do we lead it from the front? And that is why our commitment was to be the first water company in the world to not only sign the science-based initiative, but also commit to net zero by 2050. We know this is like climbing Mount Everest. And to just give you a flavor, we recognized only 1% of our carbon dioxide emission comes from scope one and scope two, which is basically our own manufacturing plants, our own operations in-house. And of course, we are doing everything to conserve water, conserve energy, reuse water, and of course, do everything to use renewable energy in our manufacturing plants. But the biggest problem is 99% of our carbon dioxide emission will be coming from our products used by our customers over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, as they continue to use our products. And if you have to commit to net zero, what does that mean? We have to drive how to make our products, consume less energy, so drive our efficiency of our products, redesign our products, make them much more integrated to have a variable speed drives, controls so that they optimize energy with digital softwares. We use solar energy in terms of using fossil fuel energy, and of course, work with the ecosystem partners, which could be municipalities, industrial customers, so that they also use renewable energy because reducing that 99% of the scope three is the challenge how to solve it. So yes, this is a big ambition. We have a game plan, 
and we have to figure out how to work together with everybody to climb Mount Everest and get to net zero by 2050. Thank you, HP. That's interesting. That makes a, makes a lot of sense. When you look at the lifespan of a product, um, of course, it'll be your end users who are continually using the product year after year. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, what are specific challenges that Grunfo sees in fulfilling this commitment? Thank you, Judy. So three challenges. So first, it starts with the commitment of the leadership and the organizational buy-in. Like I said, when you start having a conversation of net zero, and you start with the factor, it's like 99% is scope three and 1% is scope one and two. Getting the buy-in from the leadership team and the organization, can we really galvanize everybody, harness the power of optimism and recognize we don't have all the tools in our hands today, how to get there, but it starts with the commitment number one, and that is probably many times organizations struggle how to get the leadership buy-in and the organizational buy-in to commit to something when we know the road is not well defined how to get there, number one. Number two, no one single team, no one organization, no one individual can do it alone. It's all about working with ecosystem partners. Just like I said, working with our suppliers, working with our value chain partners, of course, working in our own manufacturing plants, our own distribution and supply chain, but working with our customers, that is the only way to get to net zero. So that means keeping that mindset open of being collaborative, working with multiple stakeholders in a very different way is the organizational muscle that everybody has to build. And that is not an easy muscle everybody has, but it is more about rebuilding new muscles to solve new challenges. We need to have that. And the third and the last thing is recognize this is a, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And there will be bumps along the way we need to have a sense of optimism. You have to course correct. So that means it is not like we will do two and a half percent or three percent reduction every year for the next 30 years to get to net zero. Probably we'll have initial struggle how to get maybe two percent every year. And as the ecosystem gets developed, we have new ideas. We have other partners working together. We could accelerate along the way and eventually get there. So those are the three challenges, organizational buy-in and leadership commitment and support, number one creating the culture of collaboration, open-mindedness to work with other partners, other stakeholders to get there. And third, have a discovery-led mindset that everything is not crystal clear from day one, but we need to have the sense of optimism that we can solve the challenges that come along the way and eventually get there. And those are the areas that is what we are working on, how to build the one, the one we have done because that is why we committed publicly our commitment to get to net zero. The number two and the number three are the work that is still in progress and you have to keep doing it for many years to come. I think that's so interesting and that's so great to hear. It A lot of our work at W12 Plus um, also looks, is very co collaboration driven. And I think that the problems that we're facing, right, with climate change and with water scarcity, um, as you say, like no one person's good, no one group is able to do it alone. Um, and especially, this, the, the amount of work that's in front of us does require a big shift in the way that we've been doing you know, business, the way that we've been working. Um, and in a lot of our other work areas, we talk about that shift needing to come from inside a person first, right? For that person to you know, realize that you know, business as usual is not going to work, to realize that um, 
that how they're doing, how things have been done before, um, needs to be changed in order to meet these big ambitious goals um, for really the for really the sake of everybody's well-being. Uh, and so I want to ask this last question before we turn to Bruce. Um, you know, on the show, um, on and off the podcast, we talk a lot about different ways that groups have seen water. Um, you know, traditionally, uh, the dominant culture in the U.S. has seen water as a commodity or a resource to be extracted, um, distributed. Uh, do, does this conversation, uh, how does this conversation show up in your work? Um, you know, we talk about water as being inherently valuable, um, but at the end of the day, you, you know, working at a, a company, working at a for-profit company, um, how do you, how does this balance show up? Thank you, Julie. Julie, just like, you know, you all in W12 and probably many of us who are associated with the water industry, it has been a constant challenge. How do we create the sense of accountability and ownership to truly value water? Because in many places, water is considered free and anything that is probably free does not get this level of appreciation and the value it deserves. And in our case, it is such a precious resource and essential to life for the civilization to continue for decades and decades. But I wanted to tell you, I was with Grace Fu, the Minister of Sustainability and Environment for Singapore, yeah, just a few weeks ago in the United Nations water. And uh, there was a discussion going on how countries, organizations, so think about valuing water in a way it allows us to solve the water scarcity challenge that we have in the world. And her comment was so powerful, so I'm just going to reproduce on her behalf. In Singapore, which we know is a role model country in terms of water sustainability, net zero, galvanizing the whole ecosystem partnership, using right technologies and so on, their thinking is to value water not based on how much it costs to produce water now, which many times could be free or people could challenge less, but how much it will cost us to produce the next drop of water from a new source. And I think that is critical. If we are going to solve the scarcity of water for 9 billion people and want to give safe and clean water to each one of them because they deserve it, because it is essential for life, and you have to do it during our lifetime, you have to start figuring out a way how to do it. So instead of worrying about what should be the value, I felt this a simple approach that we need to think about what it will cost us to produce the next drop of water and price it that way. It's probably going to be a good, a good mechanism because probably the next drop of water is produced going to be a little less. Probably the next millionth of droplet of water is going to produce a little bit more. So it is going to be a continuous journey. And eventually that spirit of continuous improvement and mindset will allow us that one day during our lifetime, we can bring safe and clean water to everyone on this planet. Oh, I love that. I love that perspective. Um, I mean, sometimes, to be honest, it feels a little uncomfortable trying to quantify something that is so invaluable, but to put it in a, a perspective about the future, about what we're going to face next, um, I think that is really interesting and insightful. All right, Bruce, we'll turn to you for, uh, for, a few, for the next section for a few questions. Bruce, you've helped many companies improve their water use. Uh, you've worked with a range of businesses from food and beverage to mining. Can you just tell us more about your experience doing this work uh, to, start off with, to start off with? Sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll just start with a comment HP just made where um, the next drop, the cost of that is actually interesting. So say Ontario, where we're located, has five water conservation programs, and we've been the provider for all five. And those five, the water utility understands that it's cheaper for them to pay 
an industry to use less water than for them to get more capacity themselves. And so it's very interesting for a water utility to come around to that understanding instead of, hey, we're in the business of selling water, we want to sell as much as we can, versus say like Waterloo where I am, uh, they rely a lot on well water. When they run out, they got to run a pipeline from the Great Lakes to Waterloo, which is you know very, very costly, right? However, just helping people not use water in the first place. And then even from a business perspective, the average payback of not using water is one year. So like for perspective, if, if you gave me $1,000 and I gave you $1,000 every year for the rest of your life, that's a pretty good investment, right? That's what we find in industry. And the difference is there's a lack of focus. We have an approach, I can tell you, like how we do it kind of thing, but basically kind of an efficient process of finding the biggest opportunities and what's the root cause that the water's solving for you? How do you solve that job differently? And we've done it for the space shuttle in Florida down to, you know, a mom and pop restaurant. You know what I mean? And so in every case, there's opportunities that have a business case on their own, even if it wasn't what, you know, it's inherently valuable also. And so um, we do work on kind of water conservation, wastewater. The cheapest way to treat wastewater is to not generate it. So like we did a winery in BC, we cut the water in half. Then we built our plant half as big, right? Cost them half as much to build their high rate anaerobic system because we cut their wine by two thirds also, the amount of wine that was getting into the water. Now you get to sell the wine, you don't need to buy the water, and you need a smaller treatment plant, and you're going to use less energy to run that smaller plant. And so conservation is always the best first thing. And so in the water world, that's what we do. We also do it on energy. They're all interrelated anyway. If you're losing hot water, you know, you're losing energy and water if it's chilled water, right? And so say we help Maple Leaf, they're the world's first large food company to be carbon neutral. And so, and we got them there in 2019. And we got them there by going to 35 factories and changing each factory to use less water, use less energy, lose less protein as they're processing as a big protein company. And interestingly, even though they're carbon neutral, they're actually saved $17 million so far. And the difference is most people start at the end. Okay, solar panels, wind, whatnot. No, start with deep conservation. Consider those things for the last mile, not the first mile. And so we do that. We also save embedded water. Like KS was mentioning how their footprint is actually running these pumps, right? And so we'll often advocate for don't buy the cheapest initial price. There's a purchasing procurement problem where procurement is we want the lowest cost. The lowest cost, the lowest initial cost is invariably the highest total cost. It's not by accident. Because if you build a flimsy, energy inefficient pump, then it's the cheapest one to buy off the gate. But it's also the most expensive one to buy because you're going to have to replace it. You're going to have to run this thing. And that's where most of the cost is. So what we often advocate is you can buy that and there's a two-year payback to throw it away immediately. Or buy this one instead and it's a one-month payback you know, and you're going to save for the next 30 years. But we also do storm water. So when it rains, we leave the first two inches of rain on our roof of our office. And that cut our water in half, cut our storm water by 100% cut our air conditioning 40% because we got water evaporating. So they're called kind of interrelated. So we don't just do water one-off. We do it water in the context of energy and product and these kinds of things. And we get these tremendous gains for the facilities where they're more profitable to be sustainable than unsustainable. And then, sorry, and then we use that money to do development work. So we teach people in East Africa to build slow sand filters with the local materials. They can build them for $100 or less. They last 25 years. So we teach them how to build them, how to sell them, how to run a business so they can be self-supporting 
basically providing safe water in developing countries. Thank you, Bruce. I think that painted a really interesting and comprehensive picture. I'm just wondering, as HP mentioned about the challenges to get people's buy-in, and so what does that look like for you for the places that you go into work when you're doing you know, deep conservation? What kind of, are you getting pushback? What kind of reaction are you getting? Uh, the first thing we need to do is build buy-in, basically, to do it. So basically, water is traditionally undervalued. So most people assume that there's not a good business case to reduce water, right? Because water has been historically cheap. It's not cheap anymore. And you built your process based on the assumption it was cheap, but it's no longer cheap. So the first thing we do is just help them. We'll, I'll do a walkthrough and just point something out that they haven't noticed themselves. You know, if you do this, it's $50,000 a year of water savings. You know, right? And oh, right. And so you kind of in, you know, you raise the awareness level that it's actually worth our attention to look at this. this is the very first step. The next step is kind of where's all the water going? You know, forget the small ones. Like eighty percent of the water is used by these seven things. So those seven things, what job does the water solve for you? Well, we're moving apples from here to here in a flume. Well, you know, if you're just moving apples, can we use a conveyor, right? And uh, you know, some spray nozzles to clean or whatever. Like, can we go back and save the same job with little or less water kind of thing? And the same thing with energy or food loss, these kinds of things. So going to that stage gets you these large savings versus the marginal savings kind of thing. And so um, the, the first barrier is just priority level. So we're raising the priority level and then the awareness of what to do. And most government programs run the error that they're investing in implementing water savings. Implementing water is very cost-effective, even without funding. Finding the opportunity is the risky part. Because even I don't know what I'm going to find when I go to a new factory. I know based on experience, and we'll even guarantee a minimum amount we'll save, but I don't really know until I've been through that factory. So the risky part is actually finding the opportunities in the business case for them. Implementing them is, you know, if it's a one-year payback, HP, I'm pretty sure you would implement that, right, in your factory. It's finding those opportunities. That's the missing gap. Interesting. I think this will be a great time for the two of you to ask any questions you may have for each other. So I'd like to ask HP, do you have a question for Bruce or a comment about uh, what we've talked about so far? I do. I do, Zuri. First of all, Bruce, just speaking to you, I'm so inspired. Uh, the way you think, the way you are helping our clients and companies really understand and appreciate, like you said, you know, we used to say uh, there is no wastewater, it is wasted water. So, so that means absolutely how do you start with, how do you start with uh, conserving, minimizing waste before you think about you know, spending less energy. So the question I have for you is, I don't know what you eat for breakfast every day so that Judy and I can eat that and everybody else can who listen to this podcast can eat that because that will make the world a better place to have more people have this sort of thinking. Uh, <laughs> if, if I could add, I that's a great question, HP. You know, the question that comes up for me is, you know, yeah, how uh, you've developed this perspective. Where is this? Where where does this come from? Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, so. Sadly, I had to start my own company to pursue this type of work. So I worked for multinational consulting companies and for a decade. And consulting companies make money by building stuff. You get like 10% of whatever you design. So the bigger, more expensive it is, you get more money. So say that winery we did, we actually got half as much fees as if we built the original design basis. 
right? Because we cut the size of the treatment system in half. It's the same amount of work to design it. It's just smaller, but you just get less money. So I had to start my own company to focus on this kind of work because it's less beneficial for the consultant. Um, and then I had to find a new business model because they, their business model doesn't work you know, if you avoid the problem in the first place. We did a Tim Hortons factory. We eliminated the treatment plant altogether. So originally they needed a million dollar treatment plant. Now they have zero because we reduced the amount of icing and fruit and all that that's hitting the drain in the first place and the amount of water. And so I had to find a new model. And then I also, the other reason I did is um, I would take leaves of absence and do volunteer projects before for my normal employers. And I would get penalized basically in different ways because I wasn't working, you know, overtime and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so I said, well, why not create a place to work where myself or my staff can do both their technical and their volunteer. So everybody at our staff does something on the side. It doesn't matter, you know, somebody works at an animal shelter, somebody does, somebody's taking a year leave of absence in September and they're going to go travel the world and do whatever. Um, you know, can we accommodate that? So every employee gets 40 hours of paid volunteer time and as much time off without pay as they want. And so we kind of structure it that way. And our turnover is 10 times lower than a normal engineering company. So we sent the same team to 35 Maple Leaf factories. You can't do that if you have turnover. Nobody at Maple Leaf has even been to 35 factories. So, you know, they'll come to us and say, hey, we're thinking of doing this. Well, you should do this at your Edmonton plant, right? Because it's a perfect, you know, because we have this tribal knowledge, right? By keeping the team together. And if you keep the team, then you can train them higher and higher and higher. So the same person's head has water, energy, boilers, compressed air, wastewater, food loss prevention in the same head. So then you automatically can do the trade-offs in the same, you know, and this is your best solution, this thing. You know, a normal company might have that, but it's spread over 20 people in five countries. If you can train that in the same person, then you can get these phenomenal gains, right? And so we do that. We're kind of a purpose-driven organization. People come and join us for that reason and stay with us for that reason. And like in October, five of my staff came with me to Uganda and we taught, we're teaching how to build these water filters and how to run a business and all this kind of thing over there, helping them start a brand new project over there. And interestingly, the project we started was actually started during COVID without us going at all. It was started by South Sudanese refugees. And so the refugees were, we had four manufacturing plants in Uganda, South Sudan. We had a war in every town. We had a project, literally. So our refugees were, refu our managers are refugees in Uganda. Instead of giving them tents and pots and pans, we rented a conference hall. They taught 40 Ugandans to sell the filters. In the first month, in a new country, as refugees, they're providing safe water to the towns that are hosting the refugees. And this is the difference of a development versus relief approach, where you're building this capacity. So then even during COVID, we didn't go. They started a brand new project in town called Packwatch. They went there, they trained the people, they did a market assessment, a business plan, got them up and going, and they're starting providing safe water there. And we just went to visit it, and we shot a film called Nanga Kinda. We can put in a link if you want. It's a short documentary from the perspective of the refugees. And so you don't just want to solve one SDG water. Water is profoundly important, as you know, KS mentioned, like a billion people don't have to save water, right? But you solve it in a way that you also benefit the other 16 sustainable development goals, employment, equity, life on land, because you don't have to boil the water, you don't have to lose the biodiversity. You, uh, you can solve multiple wins by changing the approach that you deliver, right? Or you can just go in and try and solve that one thing and to the detriment of the other ones. And so uh, we have a TED talk too, we can put in the link if you want on kind of that topic of how do you go about doing this? Bruce, do you have a question for HP? 
Yeah, uh, I guess we had an opportunity to chat while we're waiting uh, for the blog, and I was just very inspired by what uh, what they're doing. I had no idea that Grunfos is doing these things. And so I guess my question would be, why do I have no idea that Grunfos is doing these things, right? And so traditionally, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. Originally, people didn't want to talk about saving money, right? But then they realized, you know, companies very often will talk about how much money they've saved by whatever. And then they didn't want to talk about environmental, right? Because, but now they'll talk about our, their environmental gains. But now kind of the remaining taboo is social. People don't want to talk about kind of what they're doing socially, right? Even though it's good. And so I'm just wondering, uh, A, why I haven't heard of this from Grunfos, and B, what are you guys doing about that? Thank you, Bruce. So first of all, my heartfelt thanks to Judy and Rene providing this uh, platform and the opportunity for me even to know you and connect with you. And you were right. It is not just ground force. I think there are so many amazing things going on in this whole world by individuals, organizations, small companies, organ government bodies in many parts of the world. And I think if we could figure out a mechanism to amplify all those great things done and bring others on board, I think we really can solve all the challenges that we have and each one of us is fighting how to solve it in our own way. But I think there is an amplification opportunity and I really thank you, Judy and Renee. You know, podcasts and platforms like this probably could help us connect and figure out a way to amplify. That's one. The second one also, uh, Bruce, what I felt is many of the organizations, including Grand Force, I think we all have an opportunity to drive a little bit of culture change and listening and getting inspired from what you said. Not everything has to be invented in-house. Not every problem in the world has to be get solved by our own organization. It's all about working together with a leap of faith, with a trust, with collaboration, with open-mindedness. That is easier said, but less done. At least it has been my experience. And I think that is where the true opportunity lies. And I personally believe the, the technology sector, the technology sector has done a much better job of bringing in collaboration and partnership. You think about when we buy a laptop, it is already have a Microsoft package. It is an antivirus. It has everything. It is not, if, if you and I had to go and buy the laptop from a store one and then go out to another store to buy a Microsoft package, go to a store three to buy a, a antivirus package, how life would be difficult. They have done a better job, but somehow in the water industry, I feel we have to create role model examples of how we break the internal barriers the silos and reach out, be open-minded and be talking to each other to say, hey, all of us are really working together to solve the same problem. But if we can bring our all collective effort together, probably we can have a much better return for the same amount of time and effort and energy we are going to put together. So maybe we are committed and I'm sure a platform like this from Rene and Judy will help others to come on board. And we all have the same united mission we just have to act together. As someone who has worked in water communications, I can say, yes, there's a, a hard branding and communication problem, <laughs> the challenge in the water sector. Uh, I just have one last question to close us off with. Um, this has been very, very cool and very interesting to hear both your perspectives. I feel like you two speak from a lot of the same places and um, I'm glad to be, have been able to bring you two together. So our last question we like to ask on the show um, for each of you is, is two-parter. The first part, what is a call to action you'd like to leave our listener with and what gives you hope? 
We talk a lot about hope for uh, on the show for our work. So, um, if you don't mind, let uh, I'll start with H- HP. Would you like to go first? Okay. Thank you. My call for action is: all oh, let's come together. Please open your mind, and we can create a better world that will be good for you, your organization, and for everybody. And just to join in the spirit. That's one. And the hope. We don't have to take 100 years to solve the challenges. I think we can do it in our lifetime. We can do it in the next 10, 15 years, where you can imagine a world where each of the 9 billion people have access to safe, clean water. I can assure you it is my commitment from on behalf of entire 25,000 colleagues in Grandfoss. We are committed to do our part to make it happen. We just want to be part of you all and have this journey together. And Bruce, yourself? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So. Maybe a, like a practical call to action would be just, you know, take a look at your procurement. And we don't advocate you need to buy from us because we're B Corp or Grunfos because it, right? Just what do you actually want to buy in the first place? Do you want a piece of garbage that's going to break in a year and use more energy, right? So buy what you actually want to buy. Same thing, you know. And so that's kind of a practical thing that people can do. But kind of what gives me hopes is the teams that we work with in East Africa. So we don't run the projects. We don't manage the projects. 100% of the people are from there. 100% of the managers, 100% of the board. And, you know, just as you guys are experiencing some generator issues today, you know, they have issues, you know, that we don't have. And, you know, our teams have been through war, literally, in South Sudan. And they're never refugees and hyperinflation and horrible roads that have never actually had a road work ever on right and stuff like that and so and still they managed to you know we called our one manager hey your town is surrounded by the other army can we fly you out no why not i still have 30 of these filters we made and i want to get them out because uh i want to install them first you know and so this type of heart that people have for their communities is really what gives me hope right and you know as refugees they're helping the country that's hosting them. And so I would say that is a good source of hope is to see what individuals can do together and collectively to help solve the issues. Thank you so much, you two. I really appreciated your your graciousness. Um, And this has been a very interesting conversation. um, And I'm just so glad that we were able to do this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you, Judy. Thank you. Take care. Please reach out anytime, anything. Thanks.